Let's just look at the Word today. It's good to see you. Good to, it's good to be together. And uh, um, here we go. It's someplace here. There it is. Thank you, Kim. Uh, I want to talk to you today. We're in this series called the Rediscovering and Defending the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk to you about the, three leg, the three-leggedness. Isn't that a great word? I love that word. Leggedness just sounds wonderful. The three-leggedness of the gospel and our salvation. And I've got some selected scriptures for you that we'll go through. But um, there was a fellow, and you, you've heard this name before, a guy named John Wesley. A guy named John Wesley who was, the, of course, a uh, the founder, well, he actually didn't set out to found a denomination at all. He just, uh, that came after him, the Methodists did, but God used him in a powerful way during the 1700s to actually uh, save the nation of England. England was on the verge of bankruptcy and also total anarchy and collapse. And through uh, John Wesley and the revivals that happened there, through John Wesley, the Holy Spirit restored the nation of England in a mighty way. But John Wesley, <clears throat> he would commission uh, his young preachers to go and preach in villages and towns. And upon returning, he would ask them to give a report. And this is what he'd ask. He'd say, how many got saved. When you preach the gospel, how many got saved? If they replied none, he would then ask, well then how many got mad? And if they still replied none, then he would question them if they had really presented the gospel correctly. Because the gospel demands a response. And uh, as you look in the scriptures, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Read it there. Uh, if you reread re it, you'll find out that his listeners were, um, different translations have it different ways, but it says his listeners were pierced to the heart, or they were cut to the heart, to the soul. And they were so convicted that they said, what, what do we have to do? They looked at Peter and they said, what do we have to do? And he told them to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you go further on in the book of Acts, uh, when Stephen, uh, he come to the, you know, to the, uh, to Stephen, he wasn't an apostle, but he was a, a great servant of the Lord there at the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 7, when he preached the gospel, his listeners were furious. They weren't cut to the heart at all. They were so furious and they, they, they flew into a rage. The Bible says they shook their fists at him and they even covered their ears. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. They even covered their ears. And of course, then you know what happened. They murdered him. They, they stoned him. They, they killed him. When Paul preached in Athens in, the, in the Acts 17, he was preaching to some intellectuals. So it's, they're different. They're, these are different kind of people. These are people who they just sat around all day and talked about philosophy and talked about, you know, if they will, the, you know, high thoughts. At least that's what they thought it was. <laughs> and um, they, he, would, uh, he went to preach to the, he was invited to preach up on a place called Mars Hill where these intellectuals would meet. 
And so when God, when, when, when Paul had the opportunity, he, he didn't preach like he would have, like he did in the synagogues. He didn't talk about the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't try to prove who Jesus was from the, from the script, from the Old, Old Testament. But he had to approach these, these heathen, these pagans, these Gentiles from a whole different angle. He had, to, he had to try to convey to them, had to preach to them a whole different way. And so how he started out, um, the, as they listened, he briefly explained about creation. He just talked about how God created the world. This one God. Because he had seen, remember he had seen this altar uh, before he had gone to preach about how, you know, to the unknown God. He'd seen this altar there. And so he wanted, he said, I want to preach to you about this unknown God who you don't know. I want to declare to you today who he is. So he started talking about, just briefly, about creation. About the sovereignty, about the, the supreme power of the Creator. And then he, he developed this. He further went on to explain how God created the nations. How God created the nations from one person. From one man, is, is, is what he says. He's from one person, one, one man. He created all the nations. And then he said God created the boundaries, actually, to these nations. And a place, a place for every person to be able to live. And, God, and he said, and God did this so that people would seek him. That people would be in an environment of a controlled government where it wasn't anarchy or chaos, but they would be able to seek God. And then he goes on to explain, he says that, uh, that um, God did this, of course, in his kindness. And that he made it providentially possible for all people to seek him. Um, by his unique design of the earth and the nations, but then he also created this human, the human soul to be able to understand spiritual longings within them. That God gave everyone this, this longing to want to, to uh, know something about God. That there's someone out there. You know, there's something in there that, that causes us to think. You know, is this all there is? Am I all there is? Isn't there somebody else? Is there who created all this big universe? And then Paul said that God, he, he said, God used to overlook your sins. He used to, look, he used to overlook pe- people's sins. Uh, he would look, he overlooked their ignorance, I should say, about their own sin. But now he has done something that requires and uh, a definite, a definite, a definite, Paul's really emphatic here. He says, God now requires a definite action on your part. He's talking about, he's talking to these guys. He says, he requires an action on your part because of something he has done. Because of something God has done. God used to, he used to overlook your ignorance, but no longer. Because he has done something very special that requires you to do something. That's what Paul's telling, telling them. He said, He requires you to repent of your sins and to turn to God. And then Paul gives the reason why. This is the reason that he gives. He says this, For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection from the dead, immediately some of them started laughing 
And I don't, I'm sure it wasn't very, a, a very, very quiet laugh. I'm sure they even, they spoke up. It was a laughter. It was a, a con- contemptuous laugh. They were, they were showing so uh, disrespect toward Paul right out loud. And, uh, and they basically kind of laughed him off the podium. He, he stopped preaching. And uh, there were some who wanted to know more. But I think it's interesting for us to understand something here. Paul got interrupted in his sermon. He got cut off by these intellectuals because, because he wasn't finished yet. He didn't tell them why he died. He didn't tell them why this special person had to die. He was cut off before he got to tell them that. And... Um, he did go on to explain it later on to, to other people so that they, and there were, the, uh, Luke writes there that there were some that they, they wanted to hear more about it and that they, they uh, did believe then. So listen to what Paul did. He, he had just mentioned this awesome coming judgment day of God when a special person would deal out the justice of God and to prove who this special person is, who will be the great judge, God raised him from the dead. That's what Paul is telling them. This great judge that is going to deal out God's justice is the one who was raised from the dead. And again, the intellectuals didn't let Paul finish and they, they, um, they just laughed him, you know, they laughed at him with indifference and with scorn. But um, although Paul, he, of course, he had to step down like I said, he did explain the gospel more to other people who were there because they were interested. So we see that was their response. The intellectual's response was this con- contempt, uh, this contempt and indifference. So loved ones, the gospel, as we think about the gospel, the gospel when it's preached correctly, it receives either a joyful reception, an angry rejection, or this indifferent disdain. A contempt, uh, unworthy uh, seriousness. I got to tell you, uh, maybe you've experienced this as you've talked about the gospel to people, but I've experienced these as these type of reactions too. I remember there was a fellow by the name of Ed. Ed, he was—I'd uh, never met him before, but I went to the hospital to see him. His, his daughter asked me, said, Pastor, would you go see Ed, because, or my dad, because he's not got long to live. And as I approached the bed, Ed was, he was still conscious and he, and he was able to talk. And as I explained to Ed the gospel, suddenly I could see his eyes, they, they were receptive. They wanted to be right with God. And I remember I said, Ed, uh, just need to confess your sins to God. And he began to just cry out to God. And I just, you know, when we think of confession to God, we just, we think of, dear God, I'm a sinner. Lord, I've sinned against you. Not Ed. He was starting naming things. <laughs> so I'm naming things I've done against God. And I just, I just, it was kind of amazing. I, I just, I can't remember what they were, but I remember all of a sudden he stopped and he said, Pastor, do you think that's good enough? <laughs> And his face was aglow with joy. I said, I think you made contact, Ed. He said, I think I did too. And he just began to weep. And this joy just flooded his heart. And he, 
And he was, it was a joyful reception. He heard the gospel and he, he received that, he, he happily uh, received Jesus. I remember also an angry Mike. I remember that one day preaching and, and Mike was in the back with his wife. He came reluctantly anyway. And uh, after hearing the message, Mike uh, got up and kind of left. I didn't know what was going on, but his wife glittered to me and said, oh man, Mike was so mad at you. He, said, he didn't like what he heard. And uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, next week though, he was back. And uh, he's mad again. He came back again. Pretty soon he asked for an appointment with me and he said, I got to talk to you, preacher. And he had a list of issues that he wanted to know about. And as we checked those issues off, we got down to number, I think it was about 10 of them. There was a joy on his face that showed me that Mike had faith to believe and he joyfully received the Lord. He had already done it, actually, as he's, as he's going through the list. <laughs> but at first, he was so angry. He, said he didn't like what he heard about the gospel. I remember once I was doing a funeral, too. Doing a funeral, and I've never had this happen before, but it happened that day. There was a couple who was sitting in the, in the, in the, uh, amongst the chairs, and uh, they laughed the entire time the gospel presentation that I was presenting the gospel laughed the entire time joked and laughed almost to the point of being a terrible distraction because they weren't quiet with their laughter they just thought it was ridiculous to talk about such a thing as God when the point is is that when we tell the gospel correctly Again, when we understand that our God, the gospel, our salvation is made up of these components that God was very meticulous to make sure they happened, that we need to be, be we need to tell those points. We need to make sure that those points in some way get communicated to people that Jesus not only died, that Jesus, well, let's, let's talk about it this way. Um, the gospel is like a three-legged stool. The first leg is a leg that we're very... Well, let me put it this way. I should have, I should have told this. I remember once I was sitting at the kitchen table and um, sitting down and I had this habit of sitting uh, either rocking back on two legs or sometimes I even like to balance on one. It was kind of fun just sitting at the table just balancing on one leg and, or balancing on two. And I remember my father coming in and saying, David... You can, you can sit on four or three, but not two or one. <laughs> he caught me a couple times doing that. And then um, the final time, he was pretty emphatic about it. He said, listen, you, you're, uh, my conviction needs to become yours. <laughs> you will not sit, uh, um, sit on, those, in the, on the chair on either one leg or two. You can do three or four, but not. And he said, you're going to be punished next time. Uh, I, so I, I got the message. He'd also say, you can't, if, you, if you're on a three-legged stool, you can't balance on one or two. You have to stay on three. Because, and the reason was, he said, because if you balance on two or one, you weaken the chair and the legs will get weak and pretty soon it's going to break. 
And in the same way, I think we can think about the gospel that way. It's like a three-legged stool. The first leg of the gospel, we know pretty well. We know very well. It's the, it's the you know, it's the, it's the death of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the, um, it's the death of Jesus. And um, we, we know about that. We, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a foundation of, it, of the gospel, of course. The second leg of the gospel, though, is the necessity and the significance of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. When the gospel is preached in the New Testament, these are the points, these are the parts that are eventually, that it, it, it could be that you don't hear them all at once, but the people who are listening, they will eventually get this. They will get the, these three points. The third one is this one. The third one is, it's the one we, least, we know least about, but it's the coming day of judgment. The day of judgment. The wrath of God that is coming. This is the one we don't hear much, if, if hardly anything at all, about today when it comes to God's, God's wrath or God's judgment that is coming. But loved ones, that is why Jesus came in the first place. Did you know that? Is to save us from that third thing. The judgment of God. And that's why it's often mentioned in the, in the scriptures. Peter mentioned it on Acts chapter 2. He started out actually with that. He started talking about the wrath of God that's coming. Of course, Paul, they, he talked about it, about how and God's going to use Jesus as the, as, as, the, as, the great, as the great judge there, isn't he? It's really, really crucial that we remember that our salvation is made up of those three legs. That's the reason, you know, the, the motivation, the motivation for our salvation, for our faithfulness to Jesus is because we know there's a judgment day coming. We know that. A lot of people don't even know that. A lot of people, you know, and I think this is one reason why some, so many times people are so me-focused. They're so focused on themselves and about their hurt and the pain in their life and what someone else has done to them that they, they talk about, they don't think of themselves as sinners. They just think of themselves as victims. And the whole victim thing is not a, uh, it's not a scriptural point at all. It's not a part of the, it's not part of the gospel. The whole victim thing. That all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when you play the victim, then somehow the gospel is centered around you instead of around Jesus saving you from the wrath of God. And there's a lack of power. There's a lack of conviction. There's a lack of the Holy Spirit moving in conviction upon people when they don't understand that truth about the coming day of God's wrath. In fact, actually, there's a section of, in uh, Acts chapter 24 when Paul was imprisoned there in Caesarea. Um, uh, it was uh, Felix. Uh, it says here, it says, sending for Paul, the governor, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus, as he reasoned with them about, about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he, he replied. When it's more convenient... I'll call you again. As far as we know, it was never convenient for Felix. He was so afraid of the coming judgment. So, loved ones, I, I would challenge, uh, challenge, you, challenge us to refocus our understanding the power of the gospel, of what the power of the gospel is in your life. Um, if you think you're not as close to God as you need to be, or maybe you feel like you're kind of spiritually anemic, I want to encourage you to return to these basics. 
Return these basics and refresh yourself in them. Uh, you may need to hear in a fresh way from God what the Apostle Paul said there in, 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 in Romans, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. That means the enabling, the enabling that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So we understand the gospel message. It entails the cross of Christ, that's the, the first leg, the empty tomb of Christ, the second leg, and the judgment seat of Christ is the third leg of the gospel. Amen. Our understanding of the gospel, again, that death, the resurrection, the judgment, it's just not an intellectual knowledge. It is that, but it's also an experiential thing as well. That the more we understand the gospel in our hearts, the more the word of Christ is going to dwell in us richly. And the more we will be able to, under, to, the more we'll be able to stand against the devil and also against this world. J. Wilbur Chapman, this fellow right here, uh, his fellow lived in late, 18, late 1800s to early 1900s. I think he died in 1918. He was a Presbyterian evangelist. He wrote a song that reflects the essential components of the gospel and what has secured our salvation. And there's five verses. You, you know the song. It's called One Day. Um, there's five verses that are so descriptive of the events of Christ's life. And the first verse actually just describes Christmas. Yeah, it's called One, one Day. Uh, Casting Crowns made a, they, they did a version of that song a few years ago called Glorious Day. But the first verse basically just describes Christmas. It describes the incarnation of Jesus, you know, coming to earth as different than any other human being came. He, he came, you know, through a virgin and uh, through a virgin woman. And uh, it's, 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 it's a, his, his beginning is unique upon this earth. In um, verse 2, verse two uh, it actually pictures his death, his death on the cross. It pictures Good Friday describes it like four lines there. It describes the, uh, the death of, of Christ on the cross or Good Friday. Verse 3 describes gloomy Saturday. <laughs> what it was like when Jesus was put in the tomb and how gloomy it was. And uh, that, was the, that was the day uh, you know, when the disciples, it was a Sabbath day and the disciples were, they were just kind of hunkered down um, hiding out, if you will. And uh, then the fourth verse describes Resurrection Day or Easter Day. Um, that's, the, that's, the, that's the fourth verse. And then the, the fifth verse describes Return Day when he comes back again. So you have five verses there in that song that describe the beginning of our salvation, how, you know, the, the, the incarnation, and then the ending of our salvation, or the completion of it, I should say it that way, in the return of Jesus. I like for us to look at the chorus of that, of that song, too. I think it, uh, it'll help us, too. In the chorus, it says, Living what? He loved me. Living He loved me. Again, Chapman's going to go through, he's going to go through the, those, these, these events of Christ's life. It says, living, he loved me. Again, the truth of Jesus revealed in the scriptures as he lived among us. 
as he showed us the way of God. He was the, invis- he was the exact image of the invisible God, the scripture, scripture says. Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. You know, He said, so living, when we read the word of God, when we read who Jesus is and what he said, what he taught, we're seeing God. We're understanding God. God's teaching us. It's, it's his truth to us. And so living, it shows us that, that he loved us, that he loved me. You know, the second one, dying, what? He saved me. Dying, he saved me. Jesus giving himself to die for our sins, being a, being a sin offering on the cross, being our Passover lamb. He died on Passover, so he was our Passover lamb. And then the third verse, remember gloomy Saturday, buried, he carried, what, my sins far away. What's that now? How does that relate to being, to being buried? It actually goes back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus chapter 16. That on the Day of Atonement, which was actually the Day of Judgment, it was a, the Day of Atonement was to represent um, the future day when God judges the nations, when he judges the, everyone, he judges peoples, he judges individuals. That's what that was to represent. And God taught the, the Jews, the he, Hebrews there, he said that on this day, this day of atonement, uh, Yom, Yom Kippur, he said, well, on, on this day, you are to take two goats. You remember? Two goats. And one of them is to be, de- be dedicated to Yahweh. One of them is to be sacrificed. One of them is to be killed and sacrificed his blood to be, it's blood to be, uh, uh, to make atonement for the sins of all the nation. The other one, though, Aaron, the high priest, is to place his hands upon the live goat and place his hands upon the goat and, and confess all the sins of the nation, the sins of, 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 of all of Israel. And then someone is appointed to take that goat, you know, it's, it's on a tether, and lead it into the wilderness where it can be seen no more. It's to be set loose in the wilderness and just to wander away and not come back to camp ever. It's to, it's to be gone. And that's what this represents. Is that when Jesus was placed in the tomb, he, carried, he was the scapegoat. Our sins were hidden away from us, forever to be taken away from us when we believe on Jesus. Our sins are gone. Because he's the scapegoat. They're, they've, 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 been, they've disappeared on us because God took them away. So that's what the tomb represents. He carried our sins far away. Amen. Then, of course, we have rising. He justified. He justified freely forever. Resurrection day, the day of first fruits, when they would celebrate, the Jews celebrated the, the, the harvest of, of first fruits, when, when uh, they brought in the barley harvest and they were able to wave the, the, uh, the, uh, the grains in front of the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you for life. Thank you for restoring our life. It's because of you that we have food to eat. And they were celebrating life. And Jesus rose on that, on that day, on the, on the Feast of First Fruits. That was that year he rose on that particular day and uh, signifying new life, eternal life. And it provided, of course, many things for us, excuse me, <clears throat> but an essential gift from God was this immediate justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, we were justified fully. That when God's, when he raised Jesus from the dead, it was God's way of saying, I put approval on everything Jesus did on the cross. 
of dying for us. And then we have the last. One day He's coming. Oh, glorious day. Yeah. So we see how the gospel, how the gospel is made up again of this, this, these essential things. The the essential, um, you know, the necessity of Jesus dying on the cross. Necessity of us understanding why he had to rise from the dead. And then also, the importance of what's understanding that that day is coming when we will stand before him when our lives will be examined when those who don't know Christ will be under God's wrath and those who do know Christ will be spared from that wrath and be entered and will be welcomed in to God's eternal presence amen that's how our, that's what makes our up our salvation and once I think that if we understand that and that we convey that truth to people in our testimonies, in our, in our preaching, in our teaching, that somehow those elements are included some way, the Holy Spirit will be able to convict people of their sins. I wonder sometimes that because those elements aren't missing, that's why people are, man, is it time to go home yet? I, I kind of wonder. Or people who are they're so indifferent, they don't care. They've heard the gospel, and eh, you know, that doesn't really affect me until I'm getting ready to die or something, you know? I think those are essential elements, though, if we're going to see the Holy Spirit be able to bring the conviction of sin upon people's lives. Let's bow our heads. Father, once again, we are so very, very grateful that you have not left us in the dark about our needs, about our spiritual needs before you. Lord, you began revealing yourself to us from the very beginning, to, even to our parents in the garden. But then you really got specific when you, when you established your people, the, the people of Israel, and you revealed to them so many amazing truths about, about not only who you are, but what they needed to become in order to be acceptable, to be, to be pleasing in your sight. And then you sent us Jesus. Then Jesus came and just showed everything so much more clearly. And now, Lord, we, you know, there'll be no more, re- no more re- revelations. You've done all you need to do. Lord, we know there'll be no other gift from heaven that will come. Jesus is the one. He's the one and only. He's, he's, Lord, he's not just the best. He's more than that. He's the one and only, Lord. And Father, as you've been so plain to show us the truth about what he accomplished on the cross and what his empty tomb represents and how that it spares us from the wrath to come, we pray that we also, we may not only treasure these things in our hearts, that we might ponder them and think about them and even pray about them and maybe even dream about them, Lord, that is so significant to us that, Lord, we will draw closer to you and you will become even more wonderful to us when we understand the significance of all those, all the legs of that stool. And Father, we will then be able, empowered and enabled to share the hope for which we have of escaping this wrath that is coming. 
I pray, Lord, that we will remember that you will help us as we talk to family and friends that in a loving way we will just simply share the gospel with them as you prompt us and that the Holy Spirit will work, be able to work in convicting power. We pray we will not tie his hands because of our lack of laying down a good foundation for him, for him to work from. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, again help us to grow today in our understanding of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and encourage somebody today before you leave. You know, tell them you're going to pray for them, huh? The Lord bless you.